0: When you're put in a difficult position, if you can push through it, it will give you an opportunity to really get ahead in a way that um, you might not have had otherwise.
1: If you've got a question, the voices of resin I hear oh, plastics.
2: Plastics, the Voices of Resin is a plastics podcast sponsored by SPE, inspiring plastics professionals. If you want to find out more about SPE, please visit or, like the number, SPE.org. Okay, so hello and
1: welcome. Uh, My name is Mercedes Landazri. I am design application lead at Techmer PM and the counselor for color and appearance division of SPE. And I'm one half of Plastics, the Voices of Resin. Um, I am solo, or I should say without Lindsay today, um, my uh, my partner in crime, because she is on maternity leave. Oh, good for her. Yeah. She now has two children under two, so that's fun. Wow. <laughs> Very busy. Um, so today, uh, I am here with uh, Doreen Becker. Uh, she is our current chair of um, of connor Parents Division, and um Gonna be chatting with her today a little bit about her career and being uh, a woman in a male-dominated industry. So, welcome to the
0: pod. Well, thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) We've been talking about it for a while. I'm glad that we could finally make it happen. It's good. So, we're here. uh, We're just uh, soon wrapping up uh, RETEC, our our annual color appearance conference. and uh, just just popped uh, upstairs to do do a little quick recording session. So, yeah. um, during, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background, how you got into this industry, and uh, some of the companies that you've worked for?
0: Sure. I um, it's interesting because when I was in college, I really fell in love with working in a lab. Just love you know experimenting and trying new things, and I uh, really thought that's what I would do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I. Um, Wanted to do something significant and feel like what I did made a difference. And so.
1: I know uh, you're, I'm sorry, your undergrad was in chemistry and biology. That's Is that correct. Right? That's
0: mm. correct. And so, uh, my first job was, uh, at, actually at Sloan Kettering in New York doing cancer research. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And I lasted about six weeks there. Okay. Uh, wasn't like my <laughs> longest stint in my career, but, uh, I really didn't like working with animals and, huh. um, I really didn't like having to hustle for the idea of hustling for grants and things like that. Uh Um, It was very stressful.
1: So what kind of animals did
0: you work with? Uh, Mice. So Ah. my job was to do spleenectomies and take the spleens out of mice and then staple them back together and have them walk away. It was like, and it worked. I mean, I was actually able to do it, which was extraordinary. They actually lived after my surgery. with
1: t- t- tiny little staples. Yeah, How do you,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, They I mean, it looked like, a, like an office stapler, which I'm sure it wasn't, but it was just, it was gruesome. But anyway, wow, didn't last very long there. Um, wow. But what I, uh, what I decided was that I needed to do sort of cleaner work, not working with animals and all that. Cleaner stuff. work
1: so you wanted to get into color. Yes, <laughs> which is, yes, yeah, which is really a
0: mystery. But yeah. Um, so I um, found uh, this this place that was close to home because I live in Westchester, right uh-huh. outside of New York City, and uh, I uh, got a job working with pearlescent pigments for a company called Merle, or uh-huh. we always called them the Merle. I don't know why, but um, but they were the original pearlescent pigment business, and so um, I got a job in the organic analytical lab. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, and I remember the first day I sat down with my boss. He said, well, you know, this is really a novelty industry. These are, you know, things that go into plastics and cosmetics and it's really not. You know, it's not really anything esoteric about this business. So, okay, well, I guess I'll still stay, you know, <laughs> didn't know it was going to work out. And then so anyway, I was there. I did a lot of distillations and a lot of lab work, and I really liked it a lot. So uh-huh. I was in that position for probably eight, nine years and did a lot of analytical testing and uh, learned a tremendous amount about um, not only our pigments, but about formulations and uh, whether it was in uh, cosmetics or paint or ink or whatever, so then uh, our company was bought by Engelhard, and Englehard uh, really restructured us in ways that uh, we couldn't even imagine. But uh, our the research director came to me and he said, how would you like to have a different job? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, I'd like you to go work in the plastics lab. Huh. And I said, well, I don't know anything about plastics. What are my other options? And he said, you don't have any. I said, <laughs> okay. okay, so I guess I'll go work in plastics. So, uh-huh. um, So I went up to our applications lab and started putting our effect pigments into plastics. Mm. And I realized at that point how beautiful they were.
1: Uh
0: Um, It was extraordinary to see that uh, when you mix polypropylene or polystyrene with our effect pigments, they just come alive. Right, right. Prior to that, I had been taking them apart and looking at their layers, and you know, doing all the analytical stuff. And even though I found that really interesting, uh-huh. I really didn't have any appreciation for the aesthetic beauty yeah. of our products. And
1: some of those products now are owned by BASF. Is that right? They are uh, for the moment. Yes. Uh-huh.
0: They, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and so then, uh, so I started working in the lab. Uh, up there and doing injection molding, blow molding, extrusion, all of those things, which I never even knew what those things were. Wow. And so you, oh my I, gosh. I didn't know anything about plastics, uh-huh. nothing. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, um but I I really loved it and mm-hmm. I really liked, you know, the idea of combining uh, art and chemistry together. Mm-hmm. It felt like, a, like I got to use both sides of my brain, which I didn't see previously. Mm-hmm. And then um, I decided that I needed to go back to school and develop a language for color because we would talk about colors, but... Uh, it was in very, um, very scientific terms. Yeah. And, um, that's not the way our customers saw them. So in order to talk to design companies or to work on, uh, what's coming next in color, it's color trends and things like that. I really needed to, uh, really understand color more fully. So I went back to school and got my master's in fine arts from, uh, uh, the new school, uh, Parsons, Mm -hmm. um, in, in New York city. And, uh, and I, I just loved it. It Mm -hmm. was, um, I thought about getting a graduate degree in chemistry, but it felt more like something I needed to get through as opposed to something I was looking forward to learning. <laughs> so uh, the MFA program was just great for me and uh-huh. it just like expanded that other whole side of my brain. Uh-huh. So then, you know, BASF bought Englehard and, uh, and, and then took that business and, uh, and I was there for a number of years and they really uh, helped me to really go into more of a marketing role. Okay. Um, so I was t- taken out of the lab and I really got to um, be in front of customers a lot more and do a lot more presentations. Uh, I also wrote a bunch of patents, uh, technical patents, while wow. I was with BASF. So um, I was able to really um, kind of really expand my career in a way that I hadn't been able to uh-huh. in, in in the past. So I thought that was really great. Uh-huh. Um, after that, um, I went to work for some master batch companies. I went to um, AmeriCam, and then I went to Shulman. Right. And now I'm at Amphyset, right. So I think
1: when I met you, you were with a Shulman. Uh-huh. Yep, Um, and then and then you've been with Ampacet for two years now. Uh, It's almost three. Almost three.
0: It'll be three in January, so it's coming up. Uh Um, But it's been it's been really good, and and um, you know it's funny. I've known people at Ampaset for years because uh, when I was at the A S F, they were our customers, so they would come into the lab, and we would talk, and we were in color marketing group together with a lot of people. So um, when Linda Carroll told me that the job there was a job opening in the color trending, color insight, and innovation group, which is how they put together all their color trending. Sure. She um, said, you know, I really want you to come and I want you to join us. Uh-huh.
1: So but I now said, I, yeah. And so so now your your title is Global Director of Sustainability, Correct. though. Yes, yes. So how did that transition happen? Well,
0: you know, it was interesting because, um, uh, you know, I had a very strong position in this insight and innovation group, mm-hmm. but I really, they asked me, they said, you know, um, we see a lot of things happening in the plastics industry. There's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of, emotion happening that's not good for our industry mm-hmm. and we really need somebody that can be passionate about it right. and and you know um, and I am passionate. and right. when I believe in something, I really get behind it in a way that is feels very to me it feels very tangible right. um, and so uh, they said, you know we want you to consider this position. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, so I'll take, it It was kind of like, like, I don't really know anything about sustainability. What are my other options, you know? Right. But, um, so I got the job on April 1st. I started (laughs) and I just started reading and doing research and and taking, I got certified as a sustainability expert and things like that. I took a class in, in New York. And so, um, so it's been like drinking from a fire hose ever since. (laughs) And the thing is, I, I, I had no idea how, how impactful it would be uh, to have have plastics either reduced or eliminated from our society, mm-hmm. it would be devastating to the economy, uh, to people's lives, to their health, to their welfare. Right. Um, it would be an enormous mistake for that to happen. So, um, so I am very passionate about the idea that we need to um, we need to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Right. And I really want to be able to. Uh, inspire our employees and our customers to really understand that this is a very, very, these are very, very good high performance products. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also have to understand that we need to make this stop. Right. Um, We have to acknowledge that the world is a mess right now. The oceans, the beaches, all of that is horrendous. Mm -hmm. And we need to do our part to help make it better.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, um, I, people talk about like, you know, we have to stop using plastic. And I say, no, we have to stop abusing plastic. Correct. Right. We can't, we can't stop using plastic. And what's, what's so tragic to me is, is that we have taken this, you know, initially plastics were, they they were envirom- an environmental solution, right? Yeah. And we've taken them and made them into an environmental problem. I think a lot of people in our industry bristle when we're confronted with that, yeah. <laughs> you know, that all the anti-plastics talk, but we need to... Um we need to first acknowledge that, right. that there there really is a problem and it's not just say problem. oh it's all on the it's all on the users mm-hmm. it's 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 us that's you right. know that the aren't recycling or we aren't reusing it's like right. no we need to it's a multifaceted solution it's, that we have well, to
0: Well it's very with, complex. Right? Yeah. but I think that to blame the consumer for this problem is is the absolute wrong tactic because uh-huh. everybody that I know whether they're in our company or uh, on the outside or even my family Everybody recycles. Everybody wants to do the right thing for the environment. I've, I haven't run across anybody that I can think of that says, oh, this is, you know, this is baloney or I'm not going to do that. Or, Who cares? Mm-hmm. Everybody really, really seems to care. So I don't really see this as a problem with the consumer. I see this with, as more of a problem that's related to our legislature mm-hmm. and, and how we're handling the recycling situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just not, they're outdated. They're underfunded. Um, they just don't work for what we currently have in our society. Right, right. And I think it's, it's changing. I mean, I see that here at Retec. I, I, you know, how many papers had, you know, vestiges of recycling or, you know, sustainability in, in the presentations. And, sure. And I gave a presentation last year on uh, sustainable design mm-hmm. in at ANTAC. And, um, so that was in May. And it was like, it was a you know it was it was a nice paper but it didn't really seem to really resonate that much with anybody mm-hmm. um but this year doing this paper i think people really like wow yeah this is information that we need to have we need to do something about it so i really think that the plastics industry is is stepping up mm-hmm. and that and that we will pivot and that we will have the opportunity to really make things better mm-hmm. i do believe that
1: absolutely yeah and yeah and so much of it is i feel like it's all very frustrating, but so much of it is marketing too, you know, and and people see these images of you know the I call it the sad turtle, right, yes, with the
0: straw. On its nose. Exactly, right, and right. it's it's
1: tragic, right? right, and and you know because these these pictures tell stories, and we right. think, oh well, here's the story. Well, I'm going to solve this problem by banning straws, right, right, but. That's uh, obviously not. <laughs> right. Not even going to make a dent. But, no. But it's a, it's um, a huge
0: mistake. Right. And, and and you know people need straws. People who yeah. are disabled need uh-huh. straws. They can't eat without them. Right. Right. They need to be able to articulate them, to bend them, to get to a certain place. Right. Um, they also um, need to make sure that they're sanitary and they don't right. get infections from them or bacteria or whatever. So they might not have the ability to wash them like right. you know somebody who has a stainless steel straw would have. And they, and many times, people that are disabled are on a budget, uh-huh. and they can't afford to pay ten dollars for a straw. Right. So you know, there's a lot of things that we have to take into consideration that you know, are somewhat opaque from our daily lives uh-huh. that other people struggle with. Right. And we need to be sensitive to that as well.
1: Right, as. right. And, you know, uh, so kind of some, some this idea that I've gotten obsessed with now with that, with the whole, the, the power of that image, you know, that video the, of the sad turtle yeah. is how can we take these plastic positive images and tell the story of the amazing things that plastics right. are doing for right. for the world, right? Right. Um, and so in, in a presentation that I gave, I think, last year, Erin Keeney, who was um, uh, at this conference, actually, she owns a company called Nonspec, and she's a professor at UMass Lowell. Um, but she makes these these incredibly low-cost, uh, prosthet- adjustable prosthetic limbs, injection molded. And uh, so I used a, a, a still of, of some of the work that she was doing, yeah. you know, in India, of these people walking for the right. first time and just... Just really incredible and inspirational. So, right, right. I'm trying to think. Well, how else can what? Right. How can we get these
0: images trending? Right, you know? and I, I, think that's really it. Is for people to really understand that it's you know plastics are inherent in our society. They're everywhere that you look. Right. I did um, a, um, a presentation internally for Ampaset where. Um, I took this picture of a guy standing in an airport uh-huh. and he kind of looked like Drew Carey, so like a big guy, right? Yeah. And he was holding two suitcases, and he, he was all fully dressed. And then I started taking all the plastics things away from him. Oh, yeah. and and so at the end of the picture, uh, it, as it was animated, uh, he was basically just standing there in a pair of underpants. Yeah, I, hope, I, was, I uh, hope they
1: were all cotton. No, where they have an elastic band? Yeah, they were really <laughs> tiny, so it wasn't a good look. But the, the, I think the idea is that, you know,
0: I said, you know, our world without plastics. And then when I got to, when everything was stripped down, I, I wrote not good. And because, I mean, everything was gone. You know. Right. The seats in the airport, all the signage, all right. the luggage. It was all plastic. Yeah. So I mean, it's or, just,
1: and and then taking it as on the other side too, it's like, well, you can't even take the picture now without plastic. That's true. That's right. Because <laughs> you,
0: you think about a camera or yeah. whatever, or a so phone just, even, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. So,
1: um, you, you'd mentioned the patents. Um, yes. What company were you working for when you published uh, your book? Oh, I was working for, uh, Shulman uh-huh. at the time, uh-huh. And what's, so. what was the title
0: of your book? It was, oh man, now you're gonna ask me that, so. <laughs> well, it's, you wrote uh, it. Right? I know, I know, and it's, it's a very long title, and yeah. we fought over the title quite a bit. Okay. But it was, um, the, uh, the history of color, um, uh, trends and and design uh-huh, uh-huh. so it was really about how color has changed throughout the ages and also um, like how it works in design and and there was quite a bit of information on there about the, the possibility of looking at you know what we can do with um, plastics and in the future and how those things work different uh-huh. materials and things so I actually have a a table of contents together right now for a new book, hey. um, on, uh, on, on, sort of the materials and the coloration of plastics and things like that. Oh, cool. And especially around effect pigments, because uh-huh. that's really what my background is, because there seems to be a bit of mystery around how to use effect pigments effectively. Huh. So, um, anyway, this, this, uh, that was the, kind of the idea of, of this book that, uh-huh. that may or may not ever come out. I don't know, Very depending cool. on, on, on time and things like I, that. I so. think
1: maybe I told you, because it was not long after I got elected to color and appearance board, um, but my father is a cataloger at University of Oregon Library. Okay, and he, you know, my family doesn't really understand. I think what what I do, but All he, right, knows, of but they know that I work in color and right. um, and he, uh, so he he sent me a a text or maybe a picture of the of your book. He oh, was like, gosh. Cool. Uh, and he was like, he's like, oh, this the title of this book made me think of you. Oh wow, and wow. I was like. Oh, I know her, yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, which, you know, at that point, honestly, this is probably the longest conversation that we've had. We're always just, know, you know, running. running yeah, yeah. Right, that's but, true. uh, but, uh, I've always been, um, kind of, you know, a, a little bit starstruck by you because you were such a, a big presence oh, on the board. Well, there's no and, reason uh, for that. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, 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 and, and, you know, by you being, a a a woman, a, you know, high up in the plastics industry, right. It was um, that's, that's a male dominated industry, sure. you know? So I uh, wanted to get, get on that topic a little bit. Yeah. Um, what are some of, uh, you know, because I honestly, for me, I've, I've seen being a woman in this industry as an advantage because I do stand out. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, some people, you know, were maybe not as outgoing, uh, have, have a harder time with it. What has that, what does that journey like been yeah. for you? Well,
0: you know, it's interesting because And I struggle too. I mean, one of the biggest things, like when you come to a retech like this or a a, a plastics meeting, is, like, there's a lot of white, old white guys here, right? Oh yeah. So it's like, and they, and since, you know, we're the females, we tend to stand out. So they all sort of know who we are, but like, oh, oh, I think I know him, but I'm not sure which one he is. And it's like, is it Mark or Bob or Jim? It's one of those. So, so it's really hard to like remember, uh, You know, I mean, I remember the stories around who they are and what they've done, but like, it's, it's hard because we're definitely in the minority for sure. And, um, you know, starting out in, in the plastics industry, uh, because it is so technical and so mechanical, the assumption is that we don't know anything right mm-hmm. so uh, I walk up to an extruder and they you know they say oh you know this is basically like a pasta machine you know oh and it comes wow. out, yeah <laughs> and it's just like really okay <laughs> and you know the same thing with with color well you might not know what a delta e is or what a, you know lab color and I'm like and you know and some of these things I have patents right so but I just always let it go because mm-hmm. it's just like that's that's their ignorance that's not my ignorance and I don't need to prove that to them so let's just let's just move on yeah. you know um, but I think as a woman I think it's tough because yeah. I think that they you know feel in some instances not all I mean there are some guys that are great and you know have, have been mentors and have really helped me tremendously uh-huh. um, you know especially my boss that I have now at ampa said he is just He's a great guy. I mean, he just sits with you and he listens and then, you know, and he doesn't really tell me what to do, but he kind of like, he kind of waits until like, it's almost like therapy in a way. It's like, you kind of arrive at the answer, you know, which is really great. So, uh-huh. uh, that has been, that's a really good relationship, uh-huh. but I've had a lot of guys over the years that feel like, you know, uh, like when I got pregnant, um, mm. I was 40 when I got pregnant, so I wasn't really on the mommy track, even though I was accused of that. It's like really the mommy track at 40, you know, this is like my last shot here before I like, you know, shrivel up and down. So, um, but you know, I was really discriminated against because I was, you know, uh, people thought I was just going to sandbag it and that I wasn't going to come back. And, you know, I was just using the company Uh and I was gone for what? 12 weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't Uh gone and I was working while I was at home because I was going stir crazy at home anyway. So yeah, it's like, you can't like once you get into, especially at that age, you know, you had your whole career, your whole life where you're working, working and all of a sudden you're home with the baby. So you're thinking, wow. I need to get on that conference call. I really need to understand what's going on, mm-hmm. and and you also feel then you have that guilt, right? Because baby's at home, you're at work, or you're at home with the baby, and you feel guilty about not being at work. So yeah. I think for women, it's really tough. I'm mean, not that men don't feel some of that too, but I just think for women, I think it's really really hard.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's shocking to me that I mean, I, I guess it shouldn't be shocking. I guess it's more frustrating for me that, uh, it, it never fails at, at these conferences, people, when they find out that I have children, they say, Oh, well, who's, who's watching your kids? Really? No, well, the, well, their father, of course, right, right, you know, right, right. And it's like you, a man would never get asked right.
0: that. That's right. I've
1: never heard that yeah. asked of a man.
0: Yep. And, and, you know? and even at interviews, people say to me, well, you know, this job requires a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. Do you have somebody at home to take care of your child? I'm like, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> of course I do. What do you think I do every day? You know, I mean it's just like this is like a new thing all of a sudden we're gonna have to travel. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah. It's crazy.
1: It's it's wild. Yeah. Um and, and yeah, the whole the, the the whole thing about the mansplaining man, that pasta stuff, yeah. I can't believe that. But um yeah. I got I had one the other day, I just could not believe it. It was an older gentleman. I was talking to him at a party and told him that I worked in the plastics industry, and then he said, Oh, I have a friend who does um he works with uh, PET. That's what they make. Um, he's like, that's what they make the uh, milk jugs out of. And I said, well, actually, that would be HDPE. Right. But uh, you, you don't, you are not right. in this industry, right. and I am a, <laughs> right. a plastics professional. Right. Thank you very much. Right. Right. But it's just like the audacity of right. you know just assuming because you're a, a young woman in, in or you know a woman in the industry that you don't I have had, technical knowledge. I had somebody a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were looking at a, a new
0: material that we're ready to introduce, and it was for. Um, it was for nylon, uh-huh. and uh, uh, anyway, I was. I, 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 he had a graph that he was uh, that he was demonstrating that it actually did what it was supposed to do, and I said to him, "Well, maybe you could explain this to me." He said, "Oh," and he looked at and he said, "Well." This down here, this PA, that's nylon. <laughs> and I said, polyamide, I know that. You know, I'm like, really? I mean, oh, my God. I was just like, no, I don't need to know. Would he have done that to a guy? I mean, I don't, maybe he would have, but, I you know, think. no. Uh, it's just like, really? Yeah. I, I mean, nobody has ever done that to me. So wow. it never a st- it, it never is a surprise at this point that people, you know, think that they need to tell you things like that. But it's, it's also, I think, you know, as you become... More entrenched in this in this business, you realize that it's so important to be humble too, right? Because it's just, um, I mean, you just never know, mm-hmm. right? You never you never know what the the perspective is of somebody else and what they've done, and and, and to really treat people with respect because mm-hmm. uh, you know some of the some of the most understated people are the most accomplished and the most intelligent just because they don't necessarily put that out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of untapped reservoirs. Mm-hmm.
2: Thanks so much for listening to Plastics. Did you know that new episodes appear on the first Friday of every month? It's pretty much just as good as your Friday paydays. And if you want to keep the excitement coming, make sure you follow us or subscribe, and then you'll see those new episodes pop up, and it will just be a thing of beauty.
1: So... Doreen, have you ever experienced um, sexual harassment in the workplace or at work events? Well, you know, it's funny because I was having this discussion with my
0: parents when the whole Me, Me Too thing came out, uh-huh. and my father owned his own business, and so what type um, of business? He was uh, he was in the automotive business, so he had a, a Toyota dealership. Okay. So um, he was he was saying, well, I don't know what all these women are, you know, complaining about. It's probably not even true, and uh, you know, a lot of them, I think, are just making it up. And I said, I don't think so. I said, I think every, almost every woman that I know has had some form of sexual harassment. And, uh, he said, really? I said, yeah, I was, I was certainly, uh, subjected to that. Not all the time, but occasionally things would come up. And when I had my first job, um, I was at the interview, we were talking about pearlescent pigments because so, I didn't even know what they were. And, uh, so the guy, uh, that was hiring me, he, he said, well, you know, it's used in things like, uh, you know, rouge for women's faces. And he touched my face Ooh. in the interview. It was what? so slimy. That's weird. It was gross. It was so good. He was so gross. It was like so <laughs> nasty. And I thought now now I probably wouldn't have taken the job. But at the time I just felt like, oh, okay. Like I just kind of like justified it. Yeah. You know, like I said to myself, okay, well, he was just trying to make a point so that I could understand what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I mean, it, it hasn't been anything terribly overt, like, you know, like I never got pushed into a bathroom or anything like that. Right, right. But it was certainly things like um, people would say little things about maybe, you know, what you were, what I was wearing or, oh, well, you know, you you were flirting with them and that's how you got this or that. Right, and, right. Um, so it was always and there was always such a fine line of. Um, you know, what you could say or how you could act and you just had to be really careful about, mm-hmm. you know, how you were perceived and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but everybody, every woman that I know has my, my, partner, same thing when she was at work, um, she used to work as an accountant and, uh, one day this guy came up behind her and he just slapped her on the butt and she turned around and screamed, don't touch me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, I don't even know why they were having an argument about something and, and he just decided to come up and give her a slap and, uh you know, like the whole office just like shut down and he just went white and he was just like, oh, well, you know, I was just kidding around. It's just like, you know, it was like okay to do that. Like women were somehow like property or inferior in some way that he felt like he needed to correct her. Right. You know? Um, and I think now it's, it's better, Mm -hmm. but I still don't think that we've resolved the problem. Mm -hmm. I still think there's a lot of work to do.
1: And what, what advice would you give to women who are experiencing that? Or, I mean, would, is it something that, cause I've, I've had different advice on it, but you know, do when, when some, when a little comment like that happens, is that something would you advise addressing that? Or would you advise just kind of going with the flow? Well, I think you need to be careful
0: about it. I think you need to pick your battles. Um, I do think that it's best to handle these things as, as personally as you can. Uh, with people uh, before you expedite it to HR or you know up 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 the ladder. Uh-huh. So um, for whatever you know, I mean, no nobody knows what the intentions are. But I, I do think that to me, I think it's better to try to work it out with the person first, mm-hmm. and then you know have to expedite it as as needed. But it, it's, it's it's just completely unacceptable, mm-hmm. and I think it still happens and. I think for women in today's workplace, uh, they have to still work twice as hard mm-hmm. and they have to really be so much more accomplished and independent. Mm-hmm. And I think women are pretty independent anyway. I think um, especially women of my generation didn't collaborate as much. They weren't as team, much of a team player because we didn't play team sports and things like that. Right. So, um, but what has allowed that to happen is that they're also more accomplished in the long run because they've had to really do a lot of things for themselves. So they've really, like, I, I traveled for years alone in, internationally, mm-hmm. uh, rather than travel with a group. And mm-hmm. so, um, and and the reason I did was because a lot of women wouldn't do it. They were afraid to travel by themselves. So mm-hmm. um, it helped me to move into higher positions that I might not have had a, the ability to do if I said, oh, I'm not going to travel by myself. And um, so I, I definitely think that when you're put in a difficult position, if you can, Push through it, it will give you an opportunity to really get ahead in a way that um, you might not have had otherwise. So, mm. um, I think in that sense, it's encouraging. I'm, you know, there's nothing encouraging about sexual harassment, but the idea that, <laughs> right. that women really have to uh, work harder and struggle more than men do in the long run, it makes them, it gives them more grit. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes them more successful in the, mm-hmm. in the long run. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the positive side of it that mm-hmm. I see but it should never ever happen right. under any circumstances. Now,
1: you, you also mentioned, um, uh, you know, some of, uh, your colleagues worrying when you, when you did get pregnant that you were going to leave your career. Right. Um, have you, have you seen that happen with other women in the industry?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, it was kind of a, 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 commonly known, Oh, she's on the mommy track, right? she, works for a while. And, you know, her husband tells her to stay home and she, you know, stays home with the kids or she works half days. And yeah, I mean, I've seen it over the years where there are women that have done that. Um, But, you know, I I don't think that that's true of all women. And I think that uh, many women have to work. You know, it's not like you have a husband that earns, you know, the major salary. I mean, now it's, Even though we're what, 78 cents on the dollar or whatever, it's still, we're still not, we're still not a parity in many cases. So I think that there are still challenges and opportunities for women, uh, to move up in the Mm -hmm. workplace. And, uh, and it's still hard because there are, there are still bastions of men in, in in that, that hang together. And, and I, I see it. I see it in a lot of places. I see it here at RETAC. I see it, you know, the golf outings and, and even how things function on our board. Uh, and I, I've seen over the years how women have really banded together on our board. Mm -hmm. Um, and there've been jokes about it kind of like, uh, you know, the, uh, I forget what they call them, the, uh, the Women of Plastic or something like, oh, that's the girls club over there. And really? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's
1: like, really? It's like, that's funny. Know, I haven't just, been privy to any of
0: this. No, this was a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. But it was just like, it was just an interesting dynamic where all of a sudden, uh, probably about five or seven years ago, there were probably eight, seven or eight women on the board. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot. Yeah, you know? and, I mean, I think
1: within the, all the different chapters of SPE, uh, the different divisions of SPE, I think color appearance has the the highest percentage of, of female board members. Yeah, actually, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and I think part of that is because it's color, right? You know that women are um, are generally uh, physiologically better at, at color, uh-huh. um, and that um, and that it's, it's a, it has an emotional side to it. Uh-huh. So I think that it's a it's one division that that they tend to gravitate towards. And, and I certainly, you know, have an affinity towards color and really enjoy working in color. Same thing with sustainability though too, right? Because sustainability, because it's right now, it's such an emotional issue. I think uh, it might be t- tougher for men to understand it because it's technical, mm-hmm. but it's also emotional, mm-hmm. so I think to be able to tap into both worlds might be difficult for some men, not all men, but um in in some ways, I have an advantage there mm-hmm. that maybe some men wouldn't have, mm-hmm. so yeah I think.
1: Um, getting back to just just uh just maybe one more question, but um I wanted to get back to you'd mentioned learning the language of color yeah right? and that's my my background is language, and I always talk about the the lack of of communication between designers and engineers Mm -hmm, and if they do if they do if they are lucky enough to be in a situation where they do communicate they're not speaking the same language that's correct so um can you speak to that a little bit what um because you said you went you wanted to go to school to learn the the language of color right um what what can you tell me about that, and how has how is your perception of color changed by expanding your vocabulary of color?
0: Well, it really it, it really caused me to buckle down and think about how to explain color beyond Roy G. Biv, right? Uh-huh. So whether especially with effect pigments, because you have things like luster and reflectivity and uh, pearlescence, and you know all of those things, but then relating it specifically to how it, you know, how it pops in a, in a product or you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, to talk about color and the emotion of color and how it, is it, is it a commanding color? Is it a trustworthy color? Mm-hmm. Is it something that is going to make the product more confident? And, um, and those things are really important to designers, mm-hmm. you know, so to be having going just beyond what's technical and really looking at sort of the attributes of the color and how it will embody that product, um, really puts me in a unique position In between the very technical engineers over here, and then the design people, and and a lot of times the design people, that's all that's like their whole language is well, or they'll say, well, I don't want it to be too gray, and then I don't want it to be too harsh. What I really want is, you know, something, and then they never finish that sentence. So it's kind of up to you to come in and say, oh, okay. So are you saying that you'd like it to be something that's uh, maybe gender neutral? or something that's a more of a classic shade that you know appeals to this demographic or whatever. Uh-huh. And so then you have to fill the gaps on both sides to come up with the right uh-huh. the right set of uh, parameters right. because otherwise, you know, they're, it, you're you're just out to see right. because because sometimes the designers don't really know what they want. They they know more what they don't want than what they do want. Mm-hmm. And then our responsibility is to come in and and just to show them. To say, oh, well, you know what we could do? We could do this. And this is, what about something like that? And then having a discussion about it. And that's what I mean by language. It's not just a matter of having the right adjectives. It's a matter of having the right dialogue mm-hmm. around color and products that really helps them to understand what's possible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, of course, conveying that back to the technical people.
1: Right. And so, translating that oh, for yeah. the technical people. Yeah. Right. And that, you know. <laughs> putting least, it into LAV numbers. For and, sure. And then the, yeah. that,
0: that, that part is easier because, you know, that's where we work. So mm-hmm. we know that. But on the other side, going out to working with the design community, uh, you know, is, is, is really being in the middle. It's like being a translator at the UN. You know, and you really have to be able to, figure out, you know, what's being said, what are the cultural nuances and what are you bringing back and, mm-hmm. and how do you describe that? I had a project one time with, um, uh, a cosmetic company and it was, um, the salesperson called and he said, uh, they need a color tomorrow and it has to be the color of a French woman with a sunburn. And then they, in an HDPE what? bottle. And I'm just like, okay, so what color is the woman? And they're like, she's French. So they assume that she was white, which is a big, <laughs> a big assumption for one thing. <laughs> right. So I said, okay, so let's assume that she's white and she's pretty pale and that maybe she's just slightly pink. And so, fortunately, I was able to dig up a, a bottle that we had made by mistake a few months ago, <laughs> and it was very, very close to what they were talking about, wow. and it worked. Yeah. Thank God, you know. But that's that's what the designer. I want a color of a French woman with a sunburn, and then the sales guy's like, I, I don't know, it just it needs to be an HDPE, it needs to be blown molded into a bottle. So, oh
1: my gosh, so yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's gonna have to be my new favorite color: French sunburn. Yeah, there you French go. lady sunburn. There you
0: go. <laughs> Mademoiselle pink or something. Mademoiselle. <laughs> <Yeah. yeah. laughs> (laughs)
1: Well, Doreen Becker, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat with me today. And
0: thanks for doing this. This is really a a noble effort on your part. So it's nice to see SPE putting this together. It's
1: great. Thanks very much.
2: All right, guys, before we wrap up this episode of Plastics, we just wanted to remind you to register for Antec. We're living it up in San Antonio from March 30th to April 2nd. Antec 2020 is produced by SPE and is the largest most respected and lit technical conference in the plastics industry. It's where classroom theory connects with real world solutions.